0: I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is David Anspaugh, film and television industry veteran, best known for directing movies such as Hoosiers, Rudy, The Game of Their Lives. He's an Indiana native and an Indiana University alum, who in 2014, after decades away, returned to make his home in Bloomington. David Anspaugh, thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you. That's uh it's really nice to be back.
0: Well, you are originally from Decatur, Indiana, yep. near Fort Wayne, a town of a few thousand. When you were growing up there in the
1: 50s and 60s, what was Hollywood to you? It was the Adams Theater and for a little while the Court Theater. It was the there were the only two theaters in in Decatur. Well, and and the Decatur drive into a certain degree. And also, I lived close enough to Fort Wayne and I had uh, grandparents and some aunts and uncles that lived there. And as I grew older when I was old enough to, well, even before I could drive, my dad or mom put me on the bus to Fort Wayne and the bus would stop right downtown just a block or two from like the embassy theater there or... uh, Oh Well, there was the, the new one that was built about the time I was in high school called the Clyde Theater, which was like out on the south side of town. It was really state-of-the-art theater for Indiana or anywhere in the country at that time. I mean, it was extremely modern. And they used to screen all of the the Hollywood road show productions, you know, like Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments films like you know, films that had intermissions you know, and overtures to begin their movie and but no i mean yeah the adams theater was uh that's where i first started going to see movies and uh at such a young age that i i think i i, I often think about when i was really young and going to the movies there with my aunts they would take turns take because they loved movies too and I used to kind of think that that's where they made them, you know, that they, that they made them somewhere in that big building or out back or whatever, you know. And because every time I would leave, I would try to catch a glimpse, you know, through this door that I, that I, behind which I felt held all the magic. So Hollywood really was the theater then? For me, it was and because we didn't have TV then. I mean, it was prior to television. I mean, we had, we, we, we did get television when I was pretty young as well, but I started going, I mean, my memories of the movies are pre-television. What television
0: do you vividly remember from your Viv- oh, a formative lot. years? Sid
1: Caesar, Milton Berle. I mean, the really early, I mean, that's the earliest stuff, you know, Amos and Andy and, Gillette Cavalcade of sports, <laughs> the Friday Night Fights. Uh, Were you hooked on TV or the movies? I was hooked on the movies for sure. I mean, I probably watch as much TV as any kid. But I, I actually, you know, I when I, again, the pre-TV days, when I would come home from school, and I'd go out and play ball or whatever until it got dark or too cold or whatever. And then I would come in and before dinner, I would go to my room and lay on the floor and listen to the radio. I'd listen to Sergeant Preston and um, Tarzan and, uh, and then later in the evening, Jack Benny on radio and uh, The Inner Sanctum and The Shadow, and, which was great training. I mean, it's too bad that kids today don't have that experience because you created the movies in your mind. You know, I knew exactly what Sergeant Preston looked like or I thought I did until he came. He had a TV show, you know, and the Lone Ranger, the same thing. Uh, and the Cisco kid and and, and Roy Rogers. And I, mean, I mean, all these dudes I, I, you know, I knew from radio before they came on, on the screen and TV and then they came to the movies. But my father was a professional talk- photographer. So I grew up around cameras my whole life. And I was exposed to that. I mean, my dad loved movies too, as my mom did. And, you know, I was sort of brought up in this visual world, you know. Of uh, And I mean, I remember when my sister and I would go with my mom to pick up my dad at the studio and a lot of times in the evening, especially when he was working late, and he would never be ready. And so we had to kill time. So we would go into the into the camera rooms, into the sitting rooms, and instead of playing photographer, I would loosen the tripod so that it would swivel, and I would turn on lights, and I would literally direct my sister and pretend I was making a movie. Was there a point when you were a kid
0: when the light came on and you said, I can do this or I want to do this? No, not even
1: remotely. No, it was always a fantasy. And even you know, and as I grew older, and um, when I came to IU, you know, as a freshman, I mean, my dad always, I would always have the benefit. He would give me sort of his hand hand me down cameras, whether they were thirty five millimeter or two and a quarter or even movie cameras. And that's when I first started shooting my own movies. Was with a Revere eight millimeter camera that my dad had given me, and then I subsequently. You know, got like the upgrade, but we never even got to Super 8. I mean, I remember doing a report in school, like in junior high or whatever, in California, and I focused on the film industry. And, you know, my dad always said that he would take us to California, and he knew a cameraman out there. And I thought, oh my God, I would really get to go on a movie set, and that never really happened. And, and, um, no, and it wasn't until until I got to IU the summer of my it was my sophomore junior year I found out they were shooting a movie in Indianapolis called Winning about the Indy 500 with Paul Newman and Robert Wagner and Joanne Woodward it was about race car driver Paul Newman driving at the Indy 500 and they were looking for extras so my best friend happened to live in Indianapolis and uh God bless his parents they somehow found an extra bed for me and and said that I was welcome to stay there as long as Bob and I were working on the film and and we applied for jobs as extras and we we got work and we drove out to the track and we were there with a couple couple hundred other extras of all shapes sizes and ages and and it was re- I remember it was incredibly hot and it was really boring because they would put us up in the stands and we were way far away from kind of the action you know really down close to camera and one day Bob and I were late getting to the track and we parked our car outside a gasoline alley and we were walking up gasoline alley and there was no one there they had already started working and that's where they would um house all of the wardrobes for all the actors and for the the principal extras that were mainly the mechanics and stuff the guys that played the, you know in the in the pit crews and those guys who were working in the pits were all legitimate racing guys that knew what they were doing because they didn't they didn't they weren't going to hire any extras that didn't you know just for insurance reasons and and for authenticity and all that so We were walking past the wardrobe garage, and all of a sudden, I said, "Hey, Bob, what do you think? Let's just..." and it was sort of like a, like Abbott and Costello or something. So you know, we go in in our street clothes and our summer, you know, jeans and t-shirt, and we come out in mechanics outfits, and we just you know we hide our clothes and we walk right down Gasoline Alley right onto Pit Row. And we never left. No one ever found us out. And we spent the rest of the summer getting on camera and getting up close and, I mean, to the point where, I mean, like you're doing this interview with me. I was sitting in Paul Newman's trailer interviewing him (laughs) ostensibly for the Indiana Daily student, but I wasn't. But I had a camera that made me look legit and I was going to IU and all that. That's where, you know, we really were sitting right in the middle of it. And that's when I really started looking at it closely, like, wow, this is something I would really love to do, I think. And that's where I really got, first got bitten by the bug. But even then, when I, when I ended up going to graduate school another seven years later at USC, I went, I went there to get my master's in film history, theory and criticism, so that I could teach on a college level, teach film. Because I love teaching, and I love movies, and that to me made the most sense. I figured, you know, that's something I could do. But it was while I was at USC that I had a couple of electives, and there happened to be a class, a couple openings in this directing class. And I was kind of embarrassed to take it because I didn't want people to think that I really was thinking about it or it was even a little voice in the back of my head, you know, saying, why don't you try it out? But I did anyway, and it changed my life.
0: Going back to IU, you landed at IU in the fall of 65. Yeah. Things are beginning to change in America. Would you describe
1: the atmosphere in Bloomington around that time? It was very confusing for me because coming from a small town, it was just a very conservative town no racial diversity very little religious diversity very little talk of politics or anything like that and and uh and I had um well I had pledged a fraternity right out, out of high school so when I moved to Bloomington I, I moved directly into a fraternity house and I was not ready to go to college basically you know, I, I I had no business being here then. I, I needed to take some time to figure out what I want to do with my life because I really didn't, I didn't have any aspirations. I mean, I yes, I was interested in movies, but that was really kind of a it was a really abstract concept because that's like a hobby or something. You know, well, I never was thinking of it as a profession, and I was not driven or obsessed by coming here to study any particular thing but because when i came to register a lot of the guys most of the guys in the fraternity were either business pre law pre med so next thing i know i'm a bi- i'm in school business i had no you know it was just a really hor- horrible experience that part was horrible until i later switched to school of education but and the politics And and because of the war at the time, ideologies and sensibilities and attitudes were very, very much divided. They were becoming very divided. And the, you know, to be part of the Greek system at that time was really considered very mainstream. And that's not where my sensibilities were headed. And, And so it wasn't, I was only in the fraternity for about a year and a half and, uh, Once I started witnessing demonstrations, I realized that I needed to be with those people and not on the other side.
0: How much divergence was there within the fraternity itself?
1: Mm, Not much. Um, Certainly no racial. And and, and again, there were so many like-minded guys. I mean, like I said, it was pretty narrow. It was either business law or medicine. That was it. I mean, you know, and then there were some athletes, you know, that went on to do pretty well. But the positive side of that experience was that I came out of it with some lifelong friends, one of them being Angelo Pizzo, who, for your listeners, if they don't already know, wrote Hoosiers and Rudy and Game of Their Lives, et cetera. And that's how we met. We met at, at the fraternity, and we both left about the same time. Because his inclinations and in politics were sort of changing, as mine were, and they, we, we just didn't fit in there, and so we both left. We maintained our friendship, and uh, you know, years later we ended up, you know, working professionally together. But so you left
0: IU. You didn't go straight to
1: Hollywood or. Didn't you, or even no, LA, you, uh, you detoured for I a few did. years. I decided I wanted to learn how to ski. So I decided to move to Aspen, Colorado with the intention of one year and ended up staying four years. And by the time I left, I was doing a lot of student teaching or uh, I'm sorry, substitute teaching and ended up skiing professionally. Uh, it was a different kind of postgraduate work um, or graduate work I was doing there. But your actual graduate work
0: began at uh, USC in the 70s? Yeah. How did you wind up out there?
1: That would take an hour show just to tell you that story, and I'm not exaggerating. It's, it's I mean, people have told me that I should write a book just about that period alone, about how that happened. Because it was such a crazy, wild, bizarre, surreal kind of situation that I found myself in. One minute I'm in Aspen, it was summertime, and I meet this woman and we go out for a short time and then poof, poof, she leaves. And and, uh, she was working as a personal assistant for an actor and... She had to leave town and said, are you going to be here in the fall? And I said, sure. And she said, well, I've got to go to Spain to work on this, you know, to to work with my boss. And I'll be back in the fall. Well, her boss happened to be Jack Nicholson. Now, Jack was not the big, this was 1974. So he wasn't like, he hadn't even done Chinatown at that time. He had done, you know, Easy Rider and Last Detail. In fact, they had just finished The Last Detail when I met her. In any case, he was there working with Michelangelo Antonioni on a movie called The Passenger with Maria Schneider, who had was very famous for Last Tango in Paris with Marlon Brando. And um, next thing I know, I'm in Spain and visiting her and getting, you know, spending every day on the set, which again didn't, didn't hurt in terms of, you know, I mean, I still didn't think I could do this. But it was a different perspective now than being an extra. And this, I would go to the set sometimes in the morning with Michelangelo and, you know, he he would let me walk with him as he would walk the locations and, you know, sort of muse over, I mean, you couldn't get away from the stuff today. I mean, no, no, I mean, you know, because time is money and the clock is ticking and he would sit there for half a day, you know, just because the light wasn't right and, you know, you'd have a two-hour lunch or maybe a three-hour lunch, and you might get a shot off before the end of the day, you know. But I also got to know Jack very well. And basically, very long story short, it was because of him, he he, uh, he ended up writing a letter of recommendation for me to get into USC. I could not have gotten in with the grades I had. I mean, they weren't bad, but they weren't good enough for USC. His name, you know, pulled a little, just enough weight, just enough to get that door open that I could sneak in the back door. Mm. And uh, I was happy that in the end I was able to make him proud because of my graduates, there were 150 graduate students that went in in 74. Of those 150, I was the only one that ended up directing feature films, Mm. which was really crazy. And that all happened because, I mean, the, the thing that changed my life was taking that directing class.
0: That's what turned you into a director.
1: Well. Or primed you. It made me, re- I mean, I, I walked into the class and, you know, I'm going to be teaching. Well, when this airs, I, may have, I will have already started teaching. But my students will hear the same thing that I heard from. My teacher, when he walked in, the first thing he said, how many of you have ever acted before? I think there were 20 to 25 of us in the class, and uh, a couple of hands went up. You know, They were in high school or college plays, and he said, well, I don't want to scare you, but I think it's only fair that I tell you now that you're going to do more acting in this class than directing, and that may not make sense to you today but if you stick with this class by the time you're finished it'll make all the sense in the world and it was it was this man and it, because he invited us outside of class to come and audit and observe his acting classes and he actually had a class that he taught that night of the first day that of class at USC and and I drove into Hollywood. I'd never been to it. I was fascinated. I wanted to see what an acting class was like. And that night as well changed my life because as I watched what was going on and listened, that's when the light went on. If you're looking for that moment, that was the one because I went up to him afterwards and I said, look, Eric, I said, uh, would it be okay if I enrolled in this class as well? And I I don't, you know, not, I don't have any, I it, the light didn't go on that Said, "Oh, you've got to be an actor." <laughs> it wasn't that; it was that there was something about this process that that drew me to it like a moth to to to, to flame. It was, I I could I can't even now put it in words exactly. It was it was it was on such a gut visceral level, you know, it, that I just it was like I had no choice. This is where I needed to be. This is where I belonged, and. You know, when I look back on it, it was uh, I realized that actually that I might be able to do this because if it involves working with actors, wow! I couldn't think of anything more fun, you know. And I, I didn't know where it was going to lead, but I thought, you know, I want to I want to play with these people, and that's really kind of how it started out. And I ended up studying. With him, and directing scenes for the class, and even in acting in a couple and i didn 't realize it because I still was naive enough to think that anyone who directed in television or film, of course they knew a lot about acting and a lot about actors and whatever. The truth was just the opposite, so that when I got my first opportunity on hill Street Hill Street Blues, when Botchko gave me a chance to direct. I was off to the races. I was light years ahead of others like myself who were just starting out. And it was because of that training, you know, in those years of studying acting that enabled me to have a communication with the talent that even to this day is grossly unattended to. People aren't, they're they're still not really teaching it. I mean, I'm going to be teaching it in my class, that's for sure.
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. Our guest today is film and TV director and producer David Anspaugh. How did you make the jump from USC graduate studies to a film or TV set?
1: Mr. Nicholson uh, offered me a job that I couldn't refuse. He was going to, he had written, he was going to star in and direct a movie. It was going to be shot when um, when I was starting fall semester, so I didn't enroll, and uh, about three, four weeks later, the movie got canceled, so it was too late for me to get back into school that term, so I thought, well, between now and next semester, uh, I was newly married, and my wife was working hard, and so I thought, well, I better get out there and try to earn some money too, and maybe I can get a job in this business. I'll, it'd be a good time for me to see, you know, sort of test the waters. And eventually, after selling skis for a while and bussing tables for a while, I got a job as a production assistant on a low-budget feature. Literally, you know, running coffee and sandwiches and all that. They were shooting the movie in outside of Scottsdale, and I had to get up and go to the airport and pick up the film at 3 a.m. at LAX and take it to the MGM lab in the middle of the night, they wouldn't even let me go to location. But as a lesson to young people starting out, I found a way creatively to parlay that into a great experience, which was I became very close to the editor. They were cutting the movie on the MGM lot, not on location. So um, the editor's name was Tina Hirsch bless her heart she uh, we became great friends and had lunch every day and I would sit and you know in the back of the room and, and w- it was a very small room but she would let me just sit in there and just quietly watch her work all day long into the night and um, finally I mean long enough that you know she would say well what do you think about this scene what would, would what would you might do differently you know uh and it was incredibly educational and helpful to me, you know, and then that job led to patted my resume a bit, and got someone to hire me as a location manager and from a location manager. Then, uh, my big break was when I was introduced to Steven Botchko, who was just starting his company at MTM, Mary Tyler Moore Productions. And, uh, we did a series with James Earl Jones called Paris, which I was the associate producer on, and then that got canceled, and we all thought we were going out to look for new jobs. And lo and behold, he comes back a couple weeks later with a script called Hill Street Station, which became Hill Street Blues, and then the rest was history. And it gave all of us
0: careers. You directed a couple of episodes of Hill Street Blues. Ten. 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 But that wasn't your first job on on the
1: program. Did you get a, a chance? No, I was associate producer first during the first year. But we all thought we were going to be canceled after the first season because even though we won tons of Emmys, Golden Globes, People's Choice, the ratings were still not very good. Well, they, and NBC kept moving us around. People couldn't find us. And we really didn't think we were coming back for a second year, but we did. And Stephen, he he promoted me to producer the second year into the second season and promised me, because I was begging for an opportunity at the end of the first year when we didn't think we were coming back, I said, Stephen, what do you have to lose? Will you give me a shot to direct one of the shows? And uh, he gave one to another friend and his his brother-in-law instead, But he, because he thought we were dead in the water too, and and, uh, but he said, if if we're picked up, I promise I'll give you one of the first ones, you know, to do. And he he was good to his word, and that first show that I directed was nominated for a Directors Guild Award. It was a great honor, but I lost to the pilot. There's no shame in that. Of course, the pilot won, and so based on that, he found. A show. Most of them were all taken directing assignments, but there was one towards the end of the year, and he gave me that one, and that one got nominated again. It fell into the next calendar year, and it won the Director's Guild Award, and then the next year I came back and did every third show. And I left Hill Street after the third year because I thought that finally we were going to get Hoosiers made. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But the blessing in that was that I went back and got more experience. I did seven or eight St. Elsewheres and a couple Miami Vices. I mean, these were all the best of best of TV and, and the most difficult shows to shoot. And I still say to this day that if I didn't have 22 hours, those 22 hours of some of the most difficult television At that time, on the air to direct, I could never have done Hoosiers. Never could have survived it.
0: You won two Emmys for your work on Hill Street Blues. What did that mean to you at the time? In retrospect, have your feelings
1: about winning those Emmys or winning awards in general changed? Well, that's a great question because I try to... This is something that I... uh, I mean, those of us that were on that show for the first three years, it was like we were on Mr. Toad's wild ride. I mean, we won every award that any television show can be given or anything can be given other than an Oscar. I mean, on my mantle, I had Peabody Awards, NAACP Black Image Awards, People's Choice Awards, (laughs) St. Christopher's Award. I mean, and then Golden Globes and Emmys, et cetera. Let there be no mistake. It is one kick in the pants to have your name called, Get up, go up there with your you know fellow producers on national TV and and in front of that of that audience full of immensely talented people and get to receive your award and all that. Yeah. But the one thing I've told young people too, I said, if you're doing it for that reason, then get the hell out because you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. The only exception in most cases is an Oscar. An Oscar will get you a lot further. Now, most people don't remember six weeks, certainly six months after the Oscars, who won what in what category. They just don't. But for the people that win them, you got a free pass for a while and you're going to make a lot more money. It's fun, but it, it it doesn't it doesn't really change anything. Like I said, with the with the exception of an Oscar, I think.
0: You directed several episodes of Hill Street Blues, also Saint Elsewhere, a couple of episodes of Miami Vice, uh, a mix presumably of soundstage and location shooting. How did all that work prepare you to become a feature film director? How steep was your very learning sim-
1: curve very simple it was it taught me how to think fast and on my feet particularly hill street those shows were impossibly written i mean we had back in those days it was i think now it's 8 days now you, back then you had 7 days and a big difference one day makes and most of the hill streets went an extra day anyway and the directors would just get the hell beat out of them for going over an extra day. But it couldn't be helped because we were working ungodly hours. You know, people were just exhausted. And, uh, I mean, you know, 14-hour days were not... Well, that was pretty much the rule of thumb. And that can that can tire you out and beat you up pretty quickly. It It taught me, as a director... Again, I would, I, would be, I would come to that set every day as prepared as anyone could possibly be. I used to finish a day's work, like on a soundstage. If we were shooting on the stage the next day, Hill Street was actually broken up into... 50% was like downtown. L. That was our back lot, sort of. And 50% of the show was on stage. And... Um, if we were shooting, say, on stage and the next day we were on stage again, I would usually spend the night on the lot and, and and walk those sets all by myself when everyone else was gone till, you know, one, two in the morning. Actually fell asleep once or twice on a set, on a comfortable sofa or something in a living room set. But, I mean, a lot of that I was doing because of my inexperience. I mean, I didn't... I was still learning, it and I wanted to really cover myself. And, and ultimately, that was really, it was great. It was good because I never went unprepared. But what, what happened was, 100% of the time, no matter how prepared you were, you never shot your shot list. You know, you had to jettison stuff left and right, but you had to be smart about what you chose to keep and what you chose to, to let go you know, to best tell the story. I've told this to students before, and and, uh, I've done seminars and workshops and stuff like that. I've never taught a complete semester, but I know this will come up in my class. Hoosiers,
0: released in 1986, a collaboration with your uh, longtime friend from IU, Angelo Pizzo. You two were not seasoned film industry veterans, to say the least. Uh, To say the least. What kind of struggle... Was it for you too, to get Hoosiers made,
1: to get the chance to make Hoosiers? Well, it goes way back. I mean, the whole idea for Hoosiers was hatched, you know, some late night session on Walnut or North Walnut in some old house when we were just sort of right before graduation sort of waxing on about what our futures would be like and wouldn't it be cool one day to go to Hollywood? Yeah, and if we did, wouldn't it be cool to make a movie about Milan High School? And, and 18 years later, we did. And literally, you could write a book about that. I mean, how 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 that movie got made. But once Angelo decided to write it, I think from the time that he finished writing it, it was... It took us about three years to get someone to say yes, which was not a long time in, in Hollywood years, you know, in Hollywood time. You know, sometimes those projects take a decade or more. To us, it seemed like an eternity. You know, we had a lot of stops and starts, and, you know, it was, it was hard because I was not a proven commodity, nor was Angelo, and a lot of people didn't think that, A, sports movies made any money, and B, certainly period sports movies, and who who's going to care about a bunch of high school kids in the 50s running around in black high tops in Indiana? And unfortunately, that's kind of the way they looked at it. And, and we did have an opportunity at Columbia. I remember having a meeting out at Columbia where they said, well, we like the concept and we'll make the movie if, Angelo, you rewrite it and make it contemporary about a guy coming into an inner city school and the kids are on drugs or, you know, they're gangbanging or whatever it is. And he cleans up, you know, the whole deal. And we said, absolutely, we have no interest in that. And then they turn around behind back and said to Angela, we'll do the Indiana thing, but you got to get rid of David. You know, you got to get a, you have to bring somebody in really experienced. And bless his heart, Angelo said, no, I'm not making this without him. He gets it. And what he didn't say is, you guys don't, obviously. You know. so yeah, there were, there were a lot of hurdles and a lot of, uh, we kissed a lot of frogs. And in fact, we almost didn't kiss the, the one that turned into the prince. Uh, we, we would, we'd been so exhausted with so many meetings that, you know, turned up bogus. And then we heard about this British producer that wanted to, that did not have a great reputation around town. And we thought, what a waste of time. This guy's not going to get it at all, you know. And we ended up reluctantly going to meet him on a Sunday Sunday afternoon at some restaurant on Sunset Strip. You know, it was very Hollywood-esque. And uh, he sat there for like half an hour and told us all the reasons why he had to make the movie. And that he did not understand India. He'd never been to Indiana. He'd never seen a basketball game in person. It didn't matter to him. He said, because that's not what this movie is about. And Angelo and I just immediately perk up. And he goes, it's about fathers and sons, and it's about second chances. He goes, I know these people in this. that you've re- I know these characters. And I really want to see this movie done. Boom. So you
0: found yourself working with Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper. How does a director, not just a first-time film director, which you happen to be, but how does a director go about gleaning the best possible performance out of the likes
1: of a Gene Hackman? Well, you mentioned Dennis Hopper, and those, and there were, they, those were two very different experiences. Part of what I want to impart in my students, should they ever have the opportunity to direct is um, is to instill in them the importance of doing your homework on every level. And part of that is doing the homework on the people that you're working with. And I didn't know... I was so excited to have Gene Hackman. And he had come to our house for a barbecue. And I, I was friends with Robert Duvall, and, and it was actually... Uh, Wilford Brimley, who introduced me to Duvall, and Duvall and Hackman were friends, and you know he was just like the coolest guy to hang out with, you know. And even prior to shooting, he was uh, really—I mean, he was funny and uh, irreverent and great stories and all that. And then first day of shooting, I didn't recognize the person that I saw. He became an entirely different person. And it was the most difficult and emotionally and physically horrendous experience of my professional career and of my of my life. It, it was, uh, he just made it hell on earth for me every day. Now, I didn't, re- and Dennis, on the other hand, was just the total opposite. A collaborator, a gentleman, just, you know, now I mean, Gene wasn't like that all the time. Probably ninety percent of the time. Was he argumentative? He was everything negative. Everything was just you know he wanted off the movie. Uh, there's a there's a cut in Hoosiers. If if next time you see it, it's in a montage where um, series of shots with uh, music playing over it, where Hickory is starting to win, right, and there is this there's this shot of the a wide shot of of Gene and Dennis sitting on the bench with the players and i i picked the shot because it was such a great moment i, I didn't know what was being said because we didn't have them wired for sound we were just shooting basketball action and you know it wasn't it wasn't a scripted scene and you see Gene say something to Dennis and Dennis kind of, he roars back with laughter and slaps his knee, you know, and, and kind of laughing. Well, I didn't find out until just a few years ago that what what made Dennis laugh was that Hackman had said, Hopper, I hope, you, hope you've hope you invested well because you and I are never going to work after this movie. This is This is a career-ending film for both of us. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he really thought that was it. He thought that he had made the worst choice in his entire career. He was threatening to quit every day or try to get me fired off the movie. and The producer said, that's not going to happen. Now, I learned a lot from him. I mean, his performance was flawless. It was amazing.
0: As a director, what else is there for you
1: to learn from your best actors? Oh, there's always stuff to learn. I mean, just it never stops i still go to class i still study primarily with uh one of the great well, well i consider him to be maybe the best acting teacher alive right now at least in this country is a guy named larry moss a lot of very big names i won't name them uh you can find his, their names in his book usually but he uh it, it's it's a process that that never ends if you if you really you know, care about what you're doing and you want to, if you want to excel if you want to be the best you can be, there's always stuff to learn. I mean, little tricks. You know, I'll give you an example. Dennis Hopper. First day on the set. If you remember the scene in Hoosiers where uh, he doesn't show up for the game until late and he's drunk. It's the sectional game. And he wanders out on the floor stumbling, you know. So now... We're getting ready, and that, the first shot in the movie for Dennis was him walking onto the floor drunk. We'd rehearsed it. We'd blocked it. We, we knew all the moves. Everybody was ready, and Dennis said, David, give me 30 seconds before you call action, once everybody's ready. I said, okay. I had no idea why he asked. So everybody's all set. AD says, ready to go. I said, OK, Dennis, 30 seconds. So he stood there, and he just started spinning in a circle as fast as he could go until he could barely stand it. And he says, OK, and then I call action. And he stumbles out on that floor, barely able to, to stand up. And I'm going, oh my god, that's just so simple but so brilliant. I've been going to acting classes for years. I've never seen that, that little trick before. And so we called Cut, and I, went, I said, Dennis, I said, I, you, know, we, you know, I've been studying for a while, and I've never seen that. T- I, I said, where did you come up with that? It's so simple. He goes, well, when I was on, and this gave me goosebumps. He said, when I was working on Giant, he did two movies with James Dean. Rebel, mm-hmm. without a cause, and Giant. And he said, I used to sit and watch Dean all the time. And, and when, when, they, when they did that big scene in Giant, towards the end, when, when they having the jet rink thing, and he walks into that banquet room by himself, just completely smashed, he said every time, you know, he'd say to George Stevens, he said, just give me 30 seconds. And Dean would stand there and spin like a dervish. Until you say, okay, and they call action. And I wa- I mean, I went, I, of course, I went out and rented Giant and watched that. I'm going, yes, that's it. He can't keep his He's not acting. That's real, you know. And, and a, so I, I did I add Goosebumps. I thought, I, you know, just by osmosis, you know, I got passed on a little James Dean trick, you know.
0: And a man in recovery is not going to be doing no, shots before it, he goes out on the floor.
1: Exactly. I mean... You know, he could have used uh, his effective memory, sense of memory to, you know, it was all very real. I mean, in fact, in fact, in the scenes when he's in the hospital drying out, oh, boy. I mean, conversations we had between lighting setups and about his time in the, you know, drying out in, in, in hospitals like that were, uh, in fact, he adds, um, Angelo never wrote a line about little green monkeys, But Dennis, he said, I used to see, I said, use that, put that in the scene. He says, oh, it's Goblin visiting time now. I said, you and the little green monkeys and all that. Yeah, it was, he said that that was very real to him. All that shivering and nurse, I need a blanket and all that. It was just, uh, I mean, he should have won the Oscar for it. You know, he got the nomination, but it was a great performance. What did
0: Hoosiers do? For your
1: career. What doors did it open? <laughs> it opened quite a few. And it just, that I wasn't really prepared for. And I don't mean that like my ego got big or anything like that. It was just, it was just, I didn't quite know how to deal with it. You know, I mean, yes, we got a lot of attention on Hill Street Blues. And, you know, so I was kind of used to that and doing interviews and sort of, but... But Hoosiers was different. You know, we we got two Oscar nominations, but if that had really had a campaign behind it, we probably would have had a lot more. It was over such a long extended period of time. And then I started getting offered films that either I didn't quite get. I mean, like, I I lost out to, like, Barry Levinson. I really wanted to do Rain Man. I was offered, you know, at least they sent it to me. Thelma and Louise. Hmm. And then I, what do I do? I pick an obscure little off-Broadway play called Fresh Horses. <laughs> Just, and boy, then the phone stopped ringing for quite a while. Fresh Horses
0: reunited Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy, who had last worked together on a John Hughes scripted movie, Pretty in Pink. Yep. But it wasn't
1: a Brat Pack film. But It was anything but. It was, it was anti-Brat. It was complete opposite of you know and and i think that i don't i none of us anticipated that that was to this day i'm extremely proud of the movie and it was ben stiller's first movie it was if not the first it's one of vigo morton's first movies i really liked that it was really a dark film you know that it, it was it was a bittersweet love story it didn't Didn't have that nice little neatly tied bow, you know, wrapped up in a nice package kind of ending. Did the Brat Pack association hurt? Yeah, I think it did because people expected kind of Pretty in Pink two or whatever it was. That yeah, they did. And in the audience polling, that came out. You know, people went, well, we thought we were going to see something kind of funny and romantic and whatever. Well, it did have some humor, and it did have some romance, but not the kind that people were expecting. Your next movie,
0: five years later, uh, teamed you back up with Angelo Pizzo, and that was Rudy. How much easier was that whole process for you than was Hoosiers?
1: Well, I, I never had more fun prior to Rudy or after Rudy ever making a movie. It was just it was one of the well, as our production designer used to, he coined a phrase he said, We're in the god loop. He said every everything, whether it was the location well, just the fact that Notre Dame allowed us to shoot there and they hadn't allowed a film to be shot there since New Rockney, All America nineteen fifty with Ronald Reagan. The weather, the cast, just the location, every everything was just like it went like clockwork. It was like a Swiss watch. It was, I, I just, it, I mean, making movies is always was really hard, but usually, you're, you're it, it's, it's something every day that's kind of boring on catastrophic. This was totally, not like that. It was really fun. I couldn't wait to get up in the morning, no matter how tired I was, how you know late in the week we'd worked. I couldn't wait. Because it was just, it was just, uh, it was kind of magical. I've never experienced anything like it before or after.
0: Given the success of Hoosiers and Rudy, which both show up on lists of all-time, most inspirational films and best sports films, did you become concerned that you might get pigeonholed as a
1: director the way actors get typecast? Well, I did. I was. I still am. And one of the reasons that I, that I started phasing out, Angelo and I both have been pigeonholed. It's been easier for him because as a writer, he can do that at home, take a few months and, and do that. I'm not saying that it's really e- all he has to do is just knock it out, you know. But he's written a lot of sports movies that never got made. Great movies about the Globetrotters, Mickey Mantle, just, uh, I can't even think of, you know, there are a lot of others that I can't think about, that I can't remember. But he was able to do that and make a great living at doing that. And, and not really, you know, he didn't like it, but it provided a good living for him. I just was not interested in making one sports movie after another. And trust me, I have been sent I don't think there's a sport known to man that I haven't read a script for. Now, there there, there's some choices, some bad choices that I made. Be, after Rudy, I was off, offered Mr. Holland's opus, and I said yes to it. And then a few days later, I reconsidered. I just said, I don't want to do—it wasn't that it was sports, but I didn't want to follow Rudy with another sort of— uplifting, feel good. I've got a real dark side, I, frankly. And and that was my problem. I couldn't just be comfortable with doing that. You know, it's like, okay, if I'm going to be typecast as the villain, you know, then I'm going to be a damn good villain and make a hell of a career out of it. You know, or if I'm going to be cast as the, you know, the the gigolo or whatever it is, or, or, or the sidekick. Uh, it was one of my big, biggest mistakes that you know I tried to get people to I mean I like the movie seven I was sent that script by accident and I went nuts over it and I I said to my agent I said boy I don't know who was responsible for this but I yes set up the meeting tomorrow and they went oh there's been a mistake (laughs) you got that oh sorry we didn't mean to send that to you Mm -hmm. and yet that was I said, but that's the kind of movie I want to make
0: your follow-up film to Rudy instead was Moonlight and Valentino, yeah, which had a lot of stars attached: Elizabeth Perkins, Whoopi Goldberg, a young Gwyneth Paltrow, Kathleen Turner. Whoopi it didn't do well no. commercially or critically. No, uh,
1: did it feel like a flop to you? No, not at all. And 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 that's the weird thing, you know. Illy, one of the things I'm going to read to my class first thing, first day of class. I'm going to read them. Uh, which I think is one of the most brilliant things. I wish I had brought it with me today, or at some point I have to commit it to memory. It at least the last paragraph. But Ilya Kazan was invited to speak to the uh, to give the commencement address at Wesleyan University in 1973. It was all about what 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 it takes to be a director. And as he wrapped it up, and he said, you know, after after going through all these things, telling you about all these things. That, that I do to prepare, you know, to make the best film that I possibly can, how is it that I end up making such bad movies every once in a while? You know, I don't know if he didn't say such bad movies, but basically it was, you just don't, with, with all the best intentions and the hardest work, and whatever, sometimes it just doesn't happen. You just, you don't know. You're working so hard. Nobody tries to make a bad movie. And and Whoopi said the same thing. You know, there was something that we missed that that didn't, because I was fascinated with the subject matter. I mean, it was written by Neil Simon's daughter. And it, was orig- it originally started as a journal. And then it was made into, then she wrote it as a play. It was based on the fact that You know, like in the movie, Elizabeth Perkins wakes up one morning, and and in real life, Ellen's husband went out for a jog and never came back and was killed, and and she wasn't able to cry for a year, literally could not grieve, and she couldn't, you know, it was this whole inner struggle, and, and about how her family, you know, tried to surround her and help her, and I, I thought it was kind of fascinating. I I don't know, I don't know where quite. If you know, please tell me. But uh, <laughs> it just uh, it 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 didn't work at all. How much in
0: in all of the repetition and and tedium of setting up the shots, <clears throat> all the day to day concerns over the course of weeks of making a film. How much of a sense of the final product? Can you garner there on site, on the set?
1: Yeah, I don't care. Uh, You know, unless you're Alfred Hitchcock and you've got every shot and every scene storyboarded, you have kind of, like, already have the movie in your head. Even then, actors add a whole different thing. Music, when, you know, timing of the release, what it's up against, the weather when it's released. There's a big snowstorm all over the, you know... The Midwest and the East Coast, and nobody goes to the theater that weekend. It's there's a lot of crazy variables, but I can tell you that in conversations with other writers, actors, directors, uh, like I said, no one they no one conspires to go out and make a bad film. Everybody tries to make the best film they can, and the one that they saw in the script and. It's just that there are more variables than you could even begin to, to 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 list as to how things could go right or wrong. I mean, Rudy is like I said, one of those examples. Now it all starts, admittedly, with the written word. You know, I mean, and even then, that doesn't guarantee you anything. I mean, you know, did did you read the thing about George Clooney? You know, about you know about my, Monument Men. You know, and just like I haven't slept for like 30 hours and where did we go wrong and how did you know what cuz they're getting terrible reviews and you know it's sort of like he didn't know I, any more than I did I mean can I say yeah is there such a thing as like oh my god you know you kind of maybe have a disaster on your hands cuz you got actors freaking out or you know somebody breaks a leg and you're getting you know and it, and you didn't plan for that, and you have to rewrite the script and all that kind of stuff. And even then, sometimes you can be a hero and pull something out, you know, out of the, out of the hat, and pull a nice fat rabbit out of the hat. And other times when you think everything is going your way, and then you put it all together, it, it becomes something else. Something's and
0: missing. Can a
1: film be derailed or rescued in post? To a certain degree, one of the great examples is Chariots of Fire, which had a traditional score, and, or orchestral score, and it just tested terribly. They didn't re-edit. They re-scored it. Vangelis. Vangelis. And it won an Oscar. Best picture. I mean, it tested really badly. And then they put, you know, so it can be something like that you you never know it it can be rescued up to a certain i mean i that that's an extreme example and i've been part of it i mean i i you know like with game of their lies we knew going in that we were behind the eight ball because they had reduced our budget to such an extent from the time that we agreed to do the movie they pushed us to the wall to the point where I told Angelo that I didn't think we should do the film because, they, because when you take that money out, then that means you have to eventually take material out of the script. And they took too much good material that never got shot for that movie. And Angelo believed that once we started shooting, they would see the errors of their ways and they would put that extra money back in and we'd be able to shoot those scenes. Never happened. Never happened. He's one of the brightest people I know, and he had, you know, we had the experience actually of the rare experience of that actually happening on Rudy, where when we finished the movie, Sony looked at the film and, or TriStar, and they said, you know what, I think you guys were right. We need, I think we, we need to see Rudy in high school, because they, they made us cut that part out and his last high school football practice and everything. So they gave us a chunk of money and sent us back to Chicago to shoot that. I tried to explain to Angela that this never happens. It never happens. That was, we, that was like one in a million. But he was convinced that it was going to happen with Game of Their Lives, and, and it didn't. And uh, we did everything that we could, but basically, again, I'm proud of the, uh, That movie was invited to screen at the Torremina Film Festival in Sicily. And I was invited to go with the movie. You had thought that I had, you know, made some Oscar-winning or nominated. I mean, I did a press conference the day after, and the whole European press was there. and They were just going nuts over it. In fact, they sent the people from the festival, they sent their uh, artistic director to Cannes to look for a soccer film or football film. And there were six of them there, and they said "Hands down ours was the best it totally you know, even with its flawed story, you know they said nobody had ever shot for a dramatic film that sport like like we did, and that we were using actor actors and and players that were acting and things like that uh, so there was a much bigger appreciation for that movie in europe than than here but Game of Their Lives was the third
0: major project on which you collaborated with Angelo Pizzo. How has your working relationship changed uh, over the years? I don't
1: think it it ever did. I mean, I I doubt that we'll make another movie together. In fact, I'm sure we won't because of, you know, Angelo's now directing and, uh, and more power to him. And I wish him nothing but the best. And although I told them, you know, at our age, be careful for what you wish for <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, we're both physically capable of going out and doing it, but it's not as easy as like it was, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It's it's very much a young person's game, but not exclusively. I mean, like you mentioned Sidney Lumet and Mike Nicholson, you know, Eastwood and people, I mean, that are a lot older than than me you know they're out there still doing it you know in all fairness they're they're doing it <laughs> under the best of circumstances you know Uh i think clint starts at like maybe around noon or 10 o'clock and they finish around five or six and and clint well, i mean he, he they but his actors know they they don't get more than usually one or two takes and then it's on to the next and on to the next and uh I think there, there's got to be something to be said for that, for the style of it. Now, I really disliked Jersey Boys. I don't know why he was chosen to direct that movie, but Million Dollar Baby, man, I could watch that again and again. And The Unforgiven, amazing. You know, you just don't. Again, uh, Jersey Boys did not win him a lot of critical praise either. You know, he, and and there, you know, you could ask Clint the same question. You know, were you aware that when you were making this, you were having problems? He would have said, absolutely not. We were having the time of our lives. It looked like, you know, love. the footage looks great. And it probably did, you know, and the performances and everything. But there's something, it's like some sort of weird alchemy. When you when you put it all together and you choose a composer to put a score in there and all that, then it becomes something else the editing matters absolutely are you as a director in the editing absolutely every inch of that every cut is 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 mine and and i mean for the most part i mean i don't i've never earned final cut on i've never had that on any movie so but i have to say that uh with the except well game of their lives was exception that i i walked away from that so did angelo at the end because there were some Real bonehead people that decided they knew better than us uh, what to do with that movie in, in scoring it and recutting it, whatever. And and I just threw my hands up, and which I'd never done before and never thought I would do. But they basically gave us no choice.
0: Speaking of Final Cut, I understand that the commercial TV <laughs> version of Rudy uh, is credited to the notorious Alan Smithy. Is that correct? That's correct. Why?
1: Well, because when they said, okay, Mr. Ansible, you've got to cut 25 minutes out of your movie. I said, well, that ain't my movie. You can do whatever you want to it, but you're not going to put my name on it. You know, when you work that hard for so long and you – I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, there were a bunch of us uh, led by Michael Mann and there was me and – Bill Friedkin and and a number of directors and and Sidney Pollack. And, you know, we tried to get everybody to take their name off their movies when they were being butchered like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, a number number of them did, but it didn't really catch on. And I don't know why, because I don't know what the big deal was to have your – I mean – have something butchered on TV and, you know, a commercial every 10 minutes. And, you know, it's just like, what a disgusting way to see a movie. And it's not your movie anyway. I mean, that's not the one that you made. You know, it's like taking any piece of art, whether it's a, you know, whether it's written for an orchestra or or a song or a painting or whatever. And they... The gallery decides. You know, we don't have an, quite enough space, so we're going to cut about a third of your canvas off. Which, which part would you like us to cut off? Literally, that's what it amounted to. Because they said you can come in and supervise the twenty-five minutes. Are you? That's like saying you know. We're going to have to eliminate, you know, one of the your child's limbs. Uh, you know, you can be any one; it'd be your choice. Just, you know, <laughs> would I want to come in and do that? No, you know. So yeah, that that I've never even seen the movie uh, in that form. But yeah, Alan's, and then they finally made a movie called Alan Smithy, the Alan Smithy film or something like mm-hmm. that. And now it's. Now you can't use Alan Smithy anymore. Um, you have to just come up with some crackpot name. Doesn't I don't even know. I won't have that experience. Any, I have to worry about that anymore.
0: Hmm. Well, you arrived in Bloomington in the summer of 2014, more than 40 years after graduating from IU. Yeah. What made this a good time to return?
1: Well, part of it was I had uh, I wasn't going to leave LA until my youngest daughter Riley. Um, was ready to go off to college. I tried to get her to come here, but um, she has uh, she's at Boston University instead, and uh, theater major and amazing singer as well. And uh, but I, you know, people said, "Why didn't she go to IU?" I said, "Well, would you want to go to IU as a freshman where your dad was teaching?" You know, I don't think so. You know, your first time away from home, nah. When you got all, and she could have gone to darn near any school she wanted to go to. So, you know, I think she would have loved it here. In fact, you know, I brought her here, and she was really impressed with the place. But once she found out I was coming here, that was sort of the end of the story. You know, but it so it was, you know, I, I, I would have come, I would have liked to have come about three years earlier because my... My run was kind of over about three years ago. I mean, I started doing theater, which I really now am excited about. I'm going to be doing a, a play at BPP this year that I'm enormously just thrilled about doing. And I want to do so much more, more assuming this works out well. And teaching, uh, I've always wanted to teach. It's what I started out wanting to do. And the business has changed so dramatically that it just wasn't fun anymore you know fighting the typecasting ageism i'm 68 years old i've got darn good health but people don't hire people my age anymore unless you're clint eastwood or redford or somebody like you know you've got a big name i would love to do nothing more i'm still attached to a couple films beautiful film with Billy Bob Thornton which may or may not happen but I am at peace with it not happening I've had such I mean I never dreamed I would be ever had the chance to do what I did on the level that I did and to have even with the flops the Moonlight and Bellatinos or the Fresh Horses to have things like Hoosiers and Rudy to, to sit in the White House with president and see my movie screened are, are, are you kidding some you know if somebody come up to me when I was in, you know junior high or high school at in Decatur Indiana say hey one day kid you're going to be you're going to be a movie director and you're going to have you're going to you're going to sit and watch one of the movies with the president of the United States in the white house screening room after you have dinner in the east room candlelight dinner you know, I just say you're absolutely, certifiably insane. So, you know, I have so much to be grateful for. And and, and I'm really looking forward to hopefully being able to instill some passion and, and, and some, you know, with 30 years of experience, good, bad and the ugly to these young people, you know, and, and as proof that a guy from Decatur, Indiana can go out and, and do this because it's really, really, really hard out there. It's tough, you know. And as talented as these kids may be, um, man, it's kind of like I'm glad that I'm through it, you know, and I can look back on it now. Do I miss it? Absolutely. Will I get a chance to do it again? Maybe. But if I don't, This is my purpose right now, you know, so.
0: Well, I've been speaking today with David (laughs) Ansbaugh. Thank you very much for being with us. It was totally my pleasure. This is John Bailey for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.